Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 10th, 2022, the price of a gallon of gas edition. I am David Plotz, CityCast here in Washington, D.C., where it's like somewhere around five bucks a gallon, I would say. I'm joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven, where gas prices are zero because Emily is driving an electric car. Right, Emily? And riding my bike. Virtue signaling all the way. Or actual virtue. But, you but not signaling actually turns. Do you signal turns? I do. Or just I signal signal turns when I'm biking. Uh, okay. That's John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning from New York City, where gas prices are probably like, I don't know, $7 a gallon or something. Hello, John. Hello, David. There's this really weird epiphenomenon in at the gas stations I tend to frequent in D.C., which is there's one whose gas prices are 80 cents a gallon higher than one that's a block away. Yeah. Huh. It's really because of where it's positioned. It catches certain a certain set of people who I think are probably desperate for gas. Whereas the one on the other side of the street doesn't because of how traffic is flowing. Well, and there was that, that one in Georgetown yeah. where the prices were like $3 more because there was some – it had had some idiosyncratic dispute or something. It was crazy, those prices. You guys sound like Andy Rooney. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and then when I was on the party line, oh, my God, you could hear what everybody was saying. Haven't you realized that at a certain point, every middle-aged man becomes like Andy Rooney? Yeah. And now the middle-aged... You know what annoys me? The middle-aged men don't even know who Andy Rooney is. Oh, tragedies, truly. <laughs> this week, the Ukrainian invasion, the flight of refugees, the attempt to corral and constrain and lock down the Russian economy, what's happened in the past week. Then inflation is at its highest rate in 40 years. Gas prices are soaring, and Americans are furious about it. Then an op-ed by a University of Virginia college student, University of Virginia student, like John Dickerson once was, in the New York Times, annoys just about everyone who is on Twitter. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. (laughs) The Russian war against Ukraine is just sad and grinding and bloody. Russian troops have clearly failed in the initial effort to decapitate the Ukrainian government and replace it and quickly take over that country. The offensive is going much more slowly than anyone expected, thanks to Russian failures and Ukrainian resistance. More than a million Ukrainians have fled, maybe, I think a million and a half, many heading west to Europe. Meanwhile, the effort, the European and American effort to isolate Russia and choke the Russian economy is succeeding pretty emphatically. So, John... The West so far has held together really effectively. There's been remarkable unanimity from the U.S. and Europe around squeezing the Russian economy, freezing oil and gas exports, locking Russia out of global finance, taking in refugees, and funding an army in Ukraine. Why do you think so far this has has gone as well as it has from a diplomatic perspective? The U.S. has a president who believes in and a set of people underneath him and a team that believes in NATO and believes in alliances and believes in international institutions. Now, I mean, the the thrust of Biden's foreign policy has been to pivot to Asia. But nevertheless, he believed in the institutions uh, that are responding. And so a lot of it is spade work that existed beforehand. And then I think it's a revulsion to what Putin is doing and, and that fundamental beliefs kicked in, that that um, self-determination and freedom are what um, the NATO countries believe in. Zelensky helped focus the mind of, I think, a lot of people. I mean, the, when Zelensky spoke to the European Union and afterward, they increased their Russian sanctions significantly. I think there's a, a direct correlation between her, his charisma and their actions. And the decisions that have been made you know, are ones that are kind of the first order of response. We're starting to see some complexity in the response, both on 
oil from Russia. The U.S. is not taking it. Europe still is. And then you saw this kind of busted play with with Poland giving MIGs to the Ukrainians. Poland wanted to do it. The U.S. does, but doesn't want to do it the way Poland did. And there you have, and still ongoing, this conflict between the way the two countries wanted to to try to help or not help. You know, I, it's not a rift, but it's um, we're in the early stages, I guess is what I mean, but before this has been fully tested in terms of its durability. Emily, John has pointed out a bunch of really key factors to why this pressure is is working and unified so so much it's a true attack on europe it's a true attack on a world order it is i think a sense that we can't let the autocrats get away with this as we've let them get away with so much we let them get away with so much but this is a bridge too far and it's also i guess that the ukrainians are have been so brave and that the russians are incompetent it's easier to squeeze them when they're doing so badly if I think if they had if had run this war more competently, it would have just been an acceptance of a kind of like, all right, well, that was bad, but what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I think that's all true. I can't figure out, though, what it is going to ultimately mean in terms of Ukraine, right? Because it feels like the more cornered Putin is, the more dangerous he is, in a sense. He's not backing off. We know that the Russian people are still getting a tremendous amount of misinformation, that if you're just watching Russian TV, you think that this um, war and invasion were justified and that you're on the side of right and that, like, everything's fine. And Can I interrupt on that point? Because I'm curious. Do you think that so assume that Russia, the information sources are limited, people are not getting information. On the other hand, they do see that they're, they're, they can no longer take foreign currency out of the bank. They do see that they're, all the uh, American and European outlets are closed, like the stores they would go to are gone. They do see that they can't access certain technology anymore. They surely understand that their world has changed radically. And what, what, what do you think people make of that? So I'm going to use my N of one. I have a good friend who's Russian. This friend of mine has been talking to her family in Russia very gingerly because she's so afraid that um, they're going to say things that'll mean she feels like she can't talk to them. I mean, because she'll be so upset about what they say. And they, uh, yes, those things they're experiencing. And it's this stoic solidarity of like, we will survive. This is part of what it means to be Russian. People attack us. We have to be strong. And the question is how long that lasts. But if you think that the reasons for the war, which you don't call a war, justified, you have a whole, you know, patriotic narrative, a nationalist narrative of your own that you can tell yourself. And so I don't know how long it takes for that to break down. My end of one is uh, it's a family. They do know what's going on. And their worry is that their young sons are going to be conscripted in Russia. They don't they they get what Putin's doing. They they didn't express the that sense of nationalism. They're they're angry at what's happening and they're particularly angry because not because the prices are high or they can't engage in the economy in the way they wanted to, but that they're worried about their kids. We're both you know arguing just from anecdote. But um yep. it does it does I guess lead to this question, the big question, which is how this how this ends and how the the West that has put these sanctions on Russia, what, how they start withdrawing them. I mean, what has to happen in order for that to start taking place? And whatever it seems to be, because this is now about the values of the West, I just don't, I don't see how that happens, because ultimately, the West is going to have to accept some kind of situation that's still going to be in conflict with those values. Emily, I interrupted you on your way to talking about how worried you were about caged Putin lying to his own people, militaries not performing, isolated, isolated both physically and apparently psychologically, like just not, you know, attentive to other people. What's your sense about what ways out that there are? Right. Like what ways out are there? I mean, and then when you think about Grozny or some of the bombing in Syria, and you think about the destruction that's already happening in Ukraine. I mean, if you use really brutal tactics, you can repress people. I don't understand how they're going to occupy that country um, or what the end game is. But I don't think that Putin thought this was going to happen. So I don't think he really had a plan for this kind of um, resistance. And it's not like he's adapting in some way that suggests... um, 
a way out? Like, what is the compromise when they say that the talks between the two sides are not yielding um, resolution? Well, I mean, how can they when one side is saying, like, no, you can't take over our country and the other side is talking about stripping Ukraine of statehood? Yeah, and it's also internally Putin has taken such radical draconian steps. So it's it's quite frightening to see Russia go from being an authoritarian you know, country, a, a, a authoritarian country with a with a dictator to really being a military dictatorship, an autocratic military dictatorship overnight with no free expression. I mean, total, I don't know. I, I can't remember what this, the hallmarks of totalitarianism is, but I feel like what Russia is heading for is a totalitarian dictatorship led by a charismatic autocrat. And that's those are the worst possible countries. And there are very few examples of countries like that 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 come back from it without some sort of extremely radical convulsion and certainly requires the death of the, this person or the, or the forced removal of this person. And that's, that's just not, you know, we can't risk that as a policy. We can't, we can't assassinate Putin much as much as it would be appealing. And it's Bill Burns, the head of the CIA testified in Congress and said, basically Putin has no sustainable political end game hard to see how the how this where this goes other than very poorly some people are excited the world has come together and and risen up against putin and russia and really isolated that economy and there's this notion well if if china becomes so bold in attacking its neighbors or in trying to restrict its neighbors the world could do that again and i just don't think that china and russia are in any way analogous at this point that china has this incredible economic interdependent web of countries that are linked to it by ports and railroads and trade ties and manufacturing and all kinds of deals which makes it a much bigger player in the world economy than Russia is or could be. So are we Emily, wondering about whether China is going to feel expansionist and emboldened, or are we wondering about whether China is going to get on board with Europe and the United States and NATO and um, sever or at least diminish some of these economic ties with Ukraine or get on board with punishing Russia? Because so far we haven't seen that, right? Right. I was more talking about them being adventurous themselves i'm still stuck would, on this conflict yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> although yes it's a good point um although there's an argument that there's that the seeds of this conflict are are come from afghanistan uh and the the tepid response to crimea so there there is a way in which when we're going through one conflict we should look for how it sends signals for the next one i i would like somebody to write the script of how he putin walks this back. Um, I mean, it, wouldn't it still be possible, given the fact that one thing you could do as an autocrat is just, like, change the terms of the game and announce victory in some way? Couldn't he pull back to Crimea and the um, eastern parts of the country that he was, you know, has decided are separatist and wanted anyway, and then, like, call it a wrap? Then does NATO and all the countries that are aligned against Russia right now say, okay, we'll take that deal. Because in so doing, they're accepting... They will. They're. They're going to have to accept some outcome that is inconsistent with the values that have been heralded for the last three weeks in terms of self determination in Crimea or the um, Donbas region or whatever Putin would accept in in this scenario. Emily, the heartbreaking story of Ukraine. We we've been talking about all these other issues, but it it is the story of this tremendous human suffering. This attacks on civilians. Attacks on hospitals, increasing shortages of, of food and water and and needed supplies, uh, and a and a flood of refugees on an enormous scale, a million, a million and a half refugees already heading for Poland and Hungary and other countries to the west of Ukraine. There's been this really great response on on the refugees. Will it hold and should we feel bad that this response was not offered to to refugees coming from other countries uh, who who made their way towards Europe in recent years. We should feel bad because really for decades now, we have had this worldwide problem and no way to solve it. So like Turkey has taken 
tons and tons of people from Syria and other parts of the Middle East. And then you don't have a kind of commensurate agreement to divvy up those refugees among other countries. Like there's no formula, there's no network, there's no like national agreement or clearinghouse or compact about what to do. Well, but it's right what's being done for the Ukrainians. Well, sure, you can't. I mean, I don't have the heart to ever argue like these people should also suffer because we didn't solve the problem for everyone else. But it really should point out this like huge set of inequities that we have about worldwide immigration and refugee status and the way in which we think about people who are not from Europe. And by we, I'm now being very like royal we, but I mean the West, like countries with more resources don't have the same sense of shared commitment to people from Syria or Afghanistan. I mean, we have really seen that over and over again. And how can you justify that? It's like treating people as more other because they're farther away. I do not, I'm not going to stand here and defend the treatment of Syrian and Afghan refugees and the it was wrong. On the other hand, I do think there is something to the notion that if people are fleeing for something that's a temporary, hopefully a temporary problem, that you try to house them and shelter them as close to where they're ultimately going to live. And so if people are fleeing from Syria, you shouldn't try to house them in in Finland. You should try to house them in, because in Turkey, so that when their country settles back, they can get back into Syria and settle back into their lives in Syria. I mean, the problem is that often we end up with these temporary, quote, solutions and refugee camps along borders that then become kind of semi-permanent. And we're not very good at, you know, figuring out most, you're right, like most people go back, even back into war-torn territories. Immigrating is an incredibly difficult and painful experience for the generation that experiences it. And it's really hard. So most people go back. But we don't kind of do a very good job of figuring out what those numbers are going to be, what signals to send, how to deal with everyone else and making things more fair. And of course, if we had a better system, more people might not go back. So there's that. But we need people in the United States and other countries. Like these are places of diminishing population, these wealthy nations. And so that's another way of thinking about this is that these these refugees are an asset. Is this question as important as it is an academic one in the context of this war Whereas, say, long-term thinking on energy policy, which is also another long-term and uh, question raised by this war, is not academic. I mean, in other words, the dependence on oil from places like Russia has put the, the U.S. and Europe in particular in a bind that might change the way policymakers think about oil. Whereas, do, you, do either of you see a way in which the refugee uh, flows will do anything to change the way people think about refugees more broadly? It is a more abstract, like, second-order question. But if you're going to ask me whether I think it's fair, I do not think it's fair. Sure. No. But I'm, <laughs> I mean, you could, all, you could almost imagine, because one of the challenges that, that European countries would say about immigration is that it will lead to destabilization in their countries, which means their countries will be less able, will be having their own fragility of their domestic population. And then in instances like a Russian invasion would have less public goodwill to call upon in these moments of calling for sacrifice for the purpose of defending, you know, the Western order. I mean, that's, you could imagine certainly somebody making that argument about why they can't take in refugees on a kind of permanent basis at the levels others might want. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're talking about effectively grand strategy, you're totally right. It has been very uncomfortable, though, to see all, you know, a bunch of places in the TV coverage or other commentary or just people talking or there's a sense of like that because these are Europeans and presumably white Christian Europeans, they kind of have a hold on us in a different way, that it's easier for us to sympathize, easier for, you know, white Americans, white other Europeans to imagine ourselves in their shoes. And like, that's something to fight against. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. Every week we do a bonus segment for Slate Plus members. It's really often the highlight of the show, honestly. No, I shouldn't say that. Not supposed to say that, but sometimes I feel that way. If you become a member, which you can by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you'll get those bonus segments. You'll get extra episodes, member-exclusive episodes of other shows. You'll get bonus segments on other podcasts. You'll get no ads on Slate Podcasts. Uh, It's great. So you should become a member. And today we're going to talk about who do we carry around in our head with us and why. 
not literally carry around in our head. That would be very Zeus and Minerva-like, but no. How do we, or Zeus and Athena, I suppose, how do we mentally carry people around in our head? We'll talk about that. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. On Thursday morning, the new inflation report came out 7.9% year over year, the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. The energy index is up 26%. Inflation infuriates people. People do not like inflation. Gas prices in particular are a subject of real focus and concern right now. They are climbing, of course, because Russian and oil and gas is being locked out of the world market. And this is cascades through the economy. The prices of everything that is made, grown or shipped, is affected by higher energy prices and higher oil and gas prices in particular. We uh, hipster urbanites who drive rather less um, and people with higher incomes who can uh, afford a extra $10 when they fill up a tank maybe don't feel it as much, but high gas prices are probably the number one source of irritation for a huge portion of Americans. What should President Biden do about it, John? Well, there's not much he can do. I mean, that's the, I mean, what should he do about it in the short term? There's not a whole hell of a lot he can do. If you open the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that's 60 million barrels. That's about three days of U.S. consumption. You know, the problem is that the, the, uh, for geopolitical reasons and moral reasons, which polls suggest Americans are behind, um, he has limited taking in or, or has refused now Russian oil, which is not a huge amount of U.S. oil, but it affects the overall market and it will increase the price of gas. So he's, to the extent he's taking immediate action, it's going in the wrong direction. There are other there are things conservatives would like with you know, on leases and uh, for on federal lands for oil exploration and um, the Keystone Pipeline and things like that, which um, everything I've read suggests it would operate at the margins. So uh, I don't think there's a great deal that Biden can do other than messaging to try to say this is all Putin's fault, which I think has limited utility. Emily, Republicans are saying that the push by Biden and by Democrats for renewables is this betrayal of the American energy industry. It's creating, it's weakening us. It's ultimately the cause of these higher gas prices. But isn't it ultimately the reverse, that the dependence on oil and gas is the is the cause here? And that if we had renewables at scale, we wouldn't be experiencing this? Totally. But isn't this like a short versus a long-term problem, right? Where the long-term problem would have headed off this crisis and we could all celebrate, but the long-term solution is so far out of our reach right now that in the short term, this is really difficult for a lot of people around the world because we do have this economy that's dependent on oil and gas in this particular way. And so it's as if they're sort of these two levers and one of them needs to be pulled right now and the other one would provide relief, but it's just like not within our grasp. Although this is hastening in some instances. So the EU gets 45% of its natural gas from Russia. Um, and the European Commission, the executive arm announced, we'll see if this works, but announced on Tuesday that um, that there is going to be a programmatic effort to wean the, the European Union off of two-thirds of the gas that, that it gets from Russia by the end of the year. 
So what, I mean, that is amazing. You're we, right. Yeah, that is a huge shift. We'll see. But there, there does seem to be the response in Europe seems less conflicted than in the than in America, where the response to this has been clear um, that that Putin has too much of a hold over Europe, and so we must wean ourselves from the stuff that gives him a hold over us. In America, though, will this inflation pressure and the coming election and its the outcome it seems trending towards means that you could imagine when Republicans get back in control that America is going to go in the opposite direction. I mean, can I also just throw a wrench into the European situation, which is that the Germans, by closing their nuclear plants in the last couple of years, really worsened their dependence on Russian natural gas. And that's another part of the energy picture that I think, you know, it's like a controversial one, but that really put them in the hole. Yeah, it did. It it would be amazing, though. The idea that this could accelerate a push towards renewables, towards nuclear, towards forms of energy that are are not uh, extractive and carbon intensive would be amazing if that if this if this has a, an effect of accelerating that, especially in Europe and in the U.S. It would be it would be so good. But I think, John, as you say, in the U.S. it probably won't. In the U.S. it will just it's going to be gonna, polarizing politically gonna, in a different way. We're going right? to frack every frack every uh, seam, open and, every tap. And do you Drills, on the drill in your backyard, Emily? Yeah, it's tiny. And how much of that yeah. view? How much of that viewpoint is in, inspired by the response to long-term problems that were laid bare by COVID and the lack of um, interest in those long-term problems? So in other words, COVID exposed all kinds of long-term problems that should get our attention but don't seem to have, and it seems like this is, this is a similar instance. Yeah. Well, there is this really alarming polling data point, which, John, I'm sure you have at your fingertips more than I do, which is that something like 70% of Americans support shutting off Russian oil and gas exports and shutting off the Russian economy. But that number drops to 40% when people are told that it's going to result in higher energy prices. I I saw a number that was 71% of those polled said they'd support a ban on Russian oil, even if it meant higher gas prices. So... Oh, I, I should note that my poll was from the beginning of the invasion as the invasion has gone on, Americans seem to become more supportive of the idea of punishing Russia, even if it does cause pain at the pump. People can say that in the abstract, but then when you go to the pump, and the problem, of course, with gas prices is that it's kicking you every time you fill up the car. In other words, it doesn't go away. It's not a one-term thing. And this leads to a broader issue about the entire economic picture. Because while inflation is in fact up, the February employment report was the 638,000 new jobs. Weekly earnings were up by 5.4% in February. Growth was 5.7 last year. These are all great economic numbers, but what the political scientists will tell you, and Matt Grossman on the um, the Science of Politics, which is the podcast for the Niskanen Center, interviewed Laurel Harbridge-Young, who studied this and studied the the relationship between gas prices and um, approval ratings. And it turns out press coverage has nothing to do with it. So the argument that the press should stop talking about their argument from liberals, the press should stop talking about inflation because it's getting people all ginned up. Turns out people get ginned up anyway. And that people have a daily relationship with inflation in the way that they don't with all those other economic numbers. People have like daily, sometimes, you know, multiple times a day experience of prices. Right. People buy gas multiple times a day? No, but they buy other things oh. multiple times a day, and oh. it's not just gas, right? I guess you cut, if you, you go for a long store. drive, you drive, you, if you, you, you Ugh, might use a whole tank. Bad day, man. Well, no, it'd be like a road, if you're road tripping. I know, I just don't like driving. Do you, David, you mentioned the, the, da- the, the level of irritation on gas prices, which is absolutely, um, which is absolutely true. And, and the counterfactual is hard for people to think about politically, but... James Fallows makes the case, Jim Fallows, known by some, makes the case that uh, that um, it was so weird calling him James. Anyway. Um, and he just did it anyway, though. That's his byline. He writes us James. So uh, that's, yeah, that's people who don't know him would know him as James. You know, his argument, since he worked in the Carter administration, is, you know, yes, inflation is bad and it, and it's, um, you know, it certainly affects people. But unemployment is so much worse for a family, both economically and psychologically. And the fact that the U.S. is almost back to pre-pandemic levels of employment, given what people expected, and given that the last recovery after the financial crash of 0709 
was very slow. That, that if you're going to have one of the two things, you, you would rather have high inflation than high unemployment. What say you? Well, this is, I, this is the argument that was made at the beginning of the Reagan administration, for sure. And what Paul Volcker did was he squeezed the hell out of inflation and drove up unemployment. And there was a huge amount of suffering. On the other hand, it, the people who were unemployed, it was terrible. The country as a whole seemed to have liked it, ultimately. And then we entered a period, because of really good Fed policy, where we've had relatively low unemployment and relatively and extremely low inflation. And it's been, that's been, people like that. That's what people have come to expect as the norm. They used to, there used to be a norm, which was you had inflation or you had a high unemployment. Those were kind of, they toggled back and between. And then Carter, you had high unemployment and high inflation, which was stagflation. But, mm, poor. but, but, they, but we've grown expensive to expect something where you have pretty low unemployment and pretty low inflation. And that, that has, people have normed that and thus any variation from it is bad. And I don't think, and people clearly are so little experience with inflation. Like we, we lived inflation as kids, but we're already old people and none of the, nobody younger than us has any experience with inflation. And it, it, it really, people loathe it. It, everyone loathes it. Whereas Unemployment, it's only the minority of people who are unemployed who loathe it. Right. So even though it is worse, I think you're right, John, it is manifestly worse. It has so many bad outcomes and so many catastrophic outcomes when you have an unemployed member of your family. It is it is not universal in the way that un- inflation is universal. And inflation nags at you. It's like paying taxes every single day, every time yeah. you take out your wallet. So polls show that there's a significant number of Americans who think that there are many more job losses than there actually are. Um, so that the public, as as acute and and precise as the public may be about inflation, it's got it all wrong and confused about employment. Is it the press's job to correct that? Um, and and what if it's not correctable? I mean, I think we should certainly report accurately on job numbers and try to tell stories that show those benefits. And, you know, we are, we do have a bad news bias in the press. Absolutely. I don't think it's all correctable because I think people's impressions of the economy and of these questions are so tied to their own lives and what they see around them. And it's really hard sometimes to disrupt those narratives. I mean, I also was thinking earlier, David, when you were talking about how during that time to which we can hope to return of low inflation and low unemployment, what we worried about was concentrated suffering in parts of the country, i.e. the Rust Belt, where people who were kind of bearing the brunt of globalization, i.e. like white working class voters were turning to the right because they felt dispossessed and ignored. And they really were like, getting it socked to them in a lot of ways. So it was a different kind of concentrated versus spread out suffering. But the questions of like, when everybody pays a little bit has a little bit of um, pain, versus like, some people really, really taking a hit, it depends a lot on where people live and how the politics of that work out. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Emma Camp, a student at the University of Virginia, an undergraduate student, published an op-ed in the New York Times this week that has caused blowback. I came to college eager to debate. I found self-censorship instead, was the headline. She argued that her classmates at UVA, like young John Dickerson once upon a time, that her classmates are self-censoring rather than expressing their true beliefs for fear for fear, not it's kind of implicit, but it's more explicit, or it's kind of it's kind of implicit, but basically she's saying for fear of being mobbed by progressives who will condemn and demonize them for the most part. So what she's, she's implying that that is what the case is. Her examples, I would say, are notably weak. It is like it's, it's well asserted. Like she makes her assertion strong, but her examples of actual people being uh, silenced are, are pretty, uh, pretty feeble, in my opinion. But is she getting at a real point, Emily? Uh, I can always argue this both ways. Um, 
So I just want to say one thing. I really, the only thing I feel sure of is that the <laughs> dragging of Emma Camp on Twitter by journalists in particular, but other older adults like us, um, was gross. I just, like, she's a young person speaking out about something that she is experiencing and feeling. And maybe she could have picked better examples, sure. But the sort of... The scoffing and scorn toward her and just writing it off, just like dismissing the whole thing. And um, I just found that I didn't I, I just thought that was it was such a pile on. I really didn't like that. In terms of what she's arguing, I mean, when we were in college, lo, these many years ago, we worried about this, right? There was like a whole question of whether college students were being restricted in their speech, restricting themselves based on what they thought was politically correct. That was the term of the time. I think there were some real pressures associated with that. I think that's true now, too. It's always true that there are some things that you don't feel comfortable saying out loud. And like, that's okay. That's how society sort of moves in terms of deciding which views are acceptable or not. To me, the question is whether it's moving in a way where kids feel like they can't ask questions and debate freely, ideas that are pretty mainstream. And I think that if there is a shift, it has to do with the level of exposure if you blow it, right? I think it has to do with the internet, that like, if we said stuff in class that was just kind of dumb, we didn't have to worry that, like, it could become a national incident or go anywhere beyond our own campuses and really the classroom itself. And that new fear um, about just the level of getting villainized, I think, is having some effect on college students. Oh, my God. Can I just <laughs> I'm just going to do something. So February 5th, 1990. Politically Correct Thought Control by David A. Plotz. <laughs> Harvard does not have free discussion. We have liberal totalitarianism. Liberal every totalitarianism. Debate at Harvard, every debate at Harvard must pay homage to a politically correct PC in quotes. Did you have better <laughs> examples than Emma Camp? What were your feeble examples? Has you ever been shut up in your life? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, right. God. Can I? Um, so I think Emily Harvard sheep like liberal the- majority. <laughs> Oh, there were even sheep. Oh my God, See, you were just—you also had some cliches at your disposal. Sorry, John. Oh my God, I don't have any examples in here. Oh, good. Just, so we can't compare examples because you just had zero. Oh, I do have a class of a thousand students hissing down a student who voiced support for creationism in Moral Reasoning Twenty Two. Hmm. He's—he um, <laughs> was going for the William Jennings Bryan vote. Um, oh my God, so, this is so terrible. <laughs> Emily, what you put your finger on is a lack of balance and a lack of proportion, which kind of makes Emma Camp's point for her. I mean, so it is possible that she could have a super weak case, and yet she's touching on something that does exist. Part of what exists is the fact that you're not even allowed to have a weak case in public without getting a thermonuclear response. So... The way David made his his rebuttal of her argument is the tone and level at which these kinds of conversations could take place. Somebody is allowed to have a feeling that they clumsily put forward and then are corrected. And people would say, well, but they're not allowed to do it in the New York Times. I don't know. Sure they are. Because what happens is this idea is elevated. People feel the same way. And then somebody says, well, you know, actually, you've got it wrong because X, Y, and Z. And everybody is made better for it. Everybody is is educated. But and, and, and then the second point I would say is that the social media piece what, that I see is not just that you can become a national uh, hero that is Chris Sullentrop so long ago on this podcast used the great phrase that on the internet everybody eggs the same house. And that is, is something that's not about being uh, vilified in a, in a huge public moment, but it's just a kind of knee-jerk reaction that is now a part of public conversation. And I think that's the social media um, self-censorship that's distinct from the self-censorship that may or may not exist on college campuses, I, but that influences college campuses. I basically was pretty sympathetic to Emma Camp's piece, I should note, even though I thought it was weakly argued. But the idea that I, we all self-censor, what's the right. problem with self-censoring? That, that statistic is, the the asking of the question is how you get such a high answer to it, right? Like, yes, and we probably should all self-censor to some degree. 
I think the more interesting question, or here's something maybe it's not more interesting, but I've been thinking about lately. What happens when college campuses, universities detach themselves more from mainstream political views? So here's an example I will give. Um, I hear um, that, you know, in law school settings, it is sometimes difficult to have an opinion about the criminal legal system that is not abolitionist. Now, that's kind of bananas because most of the American people doesn't even know what prison abolition is and doesn't support it. And, you know, if you you can have an argument, and I have had many, about literally what that means and are you really saying, like, no one is ever in prison? Okay, fine, whatever. But still, you're sort of assuming a viewpoint that just doesn't have a real purchase. It's very unpragmatic. And you're not engaging with a lot of what people have said and written and thought about this for a long time. You're not like really looking deeply into the evidence if you take an ideological viewpoint like that and make it the assumed viewpoint for everyone. So like I'm perfectly thrilled to have people in a class who are abolitionist, but the idea that that is the only except there's a kind of right think, and that's the view, and that view is basically severed from actual policymaking, that does not seem so good to me. And do you, Emily, do you think that's a function of the fact that elite universities are overwhelmingly left-wing at every level now? Um, do I think that? I mean, I, I'm not sure that I... I think there are certain views, like certain areas of policy in which students and to some degree faculty, but more students just kind of get on board with something and they're enforcing it with each other. It's not really that the school is like super left wing and the faculty is like indoctrinating anyone. Actually, on this one, I feel like no, the faculty is no, like, excuse me? I mean, the, uni- mean the, I mean the left, w- the students are But I don't think the student wing. body are truly so left wing. I mean, most law schools are really pretty corporate places, right? Like where are these people going to go and work in the end? Mostly big law firms. They're like very much part of the establishment. I think it's sort of bullshit. I think what is true is that there is a small group of people who care a lot about politics, and they tend to be super lefty. And then they kind of have loud voices, and people don't want to counter them because it's just sort of not worth it to them socially. And so then you end up with these dominant views. Is the conformity that exists on those issues somehow different than whatever conformity, if you looked back to 1962, I'm sure there was conformity on a set of issues in law schools and in universities. It's just a different set of issues. Yeah, that could totally be. I mean, I think it's really hard to compare across eras, as your 1990 piece suggests, right? Because often it's irritating if you're someone who holds views or is just sort of contrarian, which we all have a little bit of this. You have the most of it, David. But like we all hopefully have some of like, well, wait a second. Is that really based in evidence? Isn't there another way to think about this? If you tend toward that and you feel like you're being forced to agree with or just be silent in the face of an orthodoxy, essentially because you're not terribly brave, right? And you don't want to piss everybody else off around you, which is like a real thing on campus, then you sort of whatever the set of enforced views are, you find it to be a kind of straitjacket. Now, whether it's really any worse or better, I don't know, except I do, I'm going to go back to my point about the internet. There's always been in-group joining. Everybody's always wanted to keep up with the Joneses and and gravitate towards views that are popular yes. in human nature. But the but but I think your point about the internet is 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 right, Emily. And if it's not social media that enforces and keeps a kind of constant marination in conformity or in people like us think this way, if that if social media doesn't do it, then partisanship does for the people engaged in the kind of debates you're talking about, Emily, which is, you know, we've seen a much greater um, unanimity in views among partisan groupings. And they've done social scientists and political scientists have done studies that if you are in the in-group and you have a view about something that happened in a debate, you don't hold on to that view once you see what the in-group feels if your view is inconsistent with the in-group. You rush to get back in the in-group. I, I want to take us in a slightly different direction as we wind down. One is that, which is that uh, if you look across this nation, the problem of snowflakes and snowflakeism is so much on the right now. It is the don't say gay legislation in Florida. It's, oh my goodness, my child had to read a Toni Morrison book. It's, please don't teach me about slavery. That's where that's where the alarm about being exposed to 
controversial ideas or ideas that challenge me is a real problem. And I was talking to a professor uh, chum of mine who was saying that they hoped that uh, what this would do would that the right wing censorship movement, the anti CRT censorship movement, they don't read books censorship movement will prompt a backlash of all kinds. And that will, it will make everyone realize, Oh, we all should be able to live in a little bit more discomfort. If we could all live more discomfortingly, that would be better for everybody. And maybe the backlash to what the right is doing on this will, will cause universities and people in universities to be like, yeah, let's, 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 let's be more uncomfortable some of the time. I love that idea. I mean, I think that is where we should go, right? It's to that place where it's there's just more free room for debate and people aren't penalized for expressing whatever view is, you know, quote, divisive or controversial. I mean, you're totally right that these divisive concepts bills that some of the red states are passing are that's actual enforcement of political orthodoxy, right? As opposed to like students hissing at each other. Right. But there does, and it seems like there should be a rush to the idea of joy in, you know, John Stuart Mill's idea that you you want, if we have a room where everybody's agreeing, it's we want to get out of that room because there should be a joy in and a rush to contradictory, contrary opinions because it sharpens whatever it is that we believe. You have to be sifted and sorted by doubt and by conflict with your ideas. That does seem to be missing. And then the question is, A, how would you teach it? And then B, is it the responsibility of, let's say, an economics professor when there's a debate in the class and somebody says something that is maybe wrong and maybe even mildly objectionable, but for the purposes of inculcating this environment of free-flowing debate, that it's the professor's job to kind of act as moderator to keep that space healthy? Or is the, is the professor's job just to teach economics and, and be done with it? Oh, God, no, you have, if you have students talking, you have to think all the time about those things. And it's, you have to balance them because you want to signal that this is a place where people can express a lot of different views. You don't have to agree with each other. At the same time, there are going to be students in the room for whom the expression of certain views is like really upsetting. And you have to have some sense of shielding them. Like, it's not true that it's acceptable to say any, absolutely anything. Like, it's not. And sometimes you have to just kind of try to figure out how to step in so that you're signaling in some way that, like, something is having an impact. Not that it shouldn't be said, but that it's having an effect. And that playing the devil's advocate is, in fact, a luxury in some debates, um, in other words, a person can't just say, well, I'm just playing devil's advocate because depending on the nature of the debate and who's engaged in the debate, people on the other side, it's impossible or it's too hard to ask them to engage in a debate that seems abstract when it affects them so personally. Right. And it can be students of color. It can be gay or transgender students. It can be conservative students. It really just depends. And it's also right. can be quite challenging if you're teaching to have like any idea what they're all experiencing and going through. I would close by noting that John Dickerson is wearing a UVA hat in, honor, in solidarity with his <laughs> fellow true. Cavaliers. Although, although it's also the case that I wear a UVA hat every time we tape. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When uh, you are tired of having your ideas oppressed in the classroom and you want to freely express your chatters and you're having a drink and freely expressing your chatters, Emily Bazelon, what are you chattering about? I am chattering about a recommendation from you, which I got so much enjoyment out of, and I can't believe you haven't chatted about this, which is the show, I believe on Hulu, called Pam and Tommy, which is this, like, such a good dramatization of the stealing of the sex tape of Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee in the mid-90s, and the spin-out that that caused really mostly for them as people and for their marriage. And so this um, whole event happened in this period in my life, which is like a black hole of culture where I had no television. And I really don't, I never watched Baywatch, which was the Pamela Anderson show. I've like barely listened to Motley Crue, which is Tommy Lee's rock group. And I don't even really think I knew about this sex tape. So I'm sure many other people who actually like are sentient. Or so you say. I know, right? Our sentient human beings know all about this. But this show goes really deep. And it does a really interesting job of playing with your sympathies. You kind of start off, or at least I did, on the side of the Seth Rogen character. And then you move over. And I just thought it was 
so interesting about feminism. This show and the great Radiolab podcast about Dolly Parton and some of the revisiting of Monica Lewinsky just is making me think so deeply about feminism in the 1990s and like how women had to balance all these expectations and what that was like. And I was there for it, but um, I'm just really found it very honestly moving. So I totally recommend this show. Pam and Tommy on Hulu. Thank you, David Plotz. I can't, I totally agree. I also thought, I mean, just from a professional acting perspective, the performances of so good of Lily Adams and Sebastian Stan as, as uh, Pam Anderson, and Tommy Lee are so Good. So good. It's a it's a deeply humane show. It's really yes. Go watch it. John John Dickerson, what's your chatter? That's great to hear. I wouldn't have guessed that. So my my chatter is totally predictable, but um, as we've discussed before on the show, that I love when old stuff is found because it's interesting. Right, can we guess? Can we guess? Can we guess <laughs> sure. what year? Sure, year sure. Is Go ahead and steal old, all of old. the narrative tension. Eighteen eighty four. Eighteen eighty four. I'm going back further. I think it's like Civil War era or even pre Civil War era. I think it's. Okay. I think it is related to Grover Cleveland. Right. What? So it's 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 not uh, Is it re- no? It's not related to Grover Cleveland. Okay, tell um, us. He was dead by then. Anyway, as we've discussed, that I love old stuff because it's not only intrinsically interesting, but it also kindles hope um, that there, you know, any day there might be some great revelation that'll capture the imagination. And frankly, in this time of woe and gnash and stomach drops, I could use all the imagination capture you could bring me. So that's where my cerebellum is at. And I welcomed then news that they had, in fact, found Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance. Oh. Off the northern coast yes. of, of Antarctica. Okay. Crushed by ice 107 years ago. The incredible story of the 28 members of the crew who, um, I mean, in their trek to survive. Nobody died. Even after, I think they ended up, they were off dry land for four, for almost 500 days. And, I mean, riding on ice flows, and then they get to what they think is safety, and it's not safety at all. Anyway. It's an amazing story, and so this rekindles that. But the finding of it was is a pretty amazing story, too. And I'll shut up soon. 10,000 feet below the water, freezing cold water, no parasites. The pictures are amazing. And so go read about the and look at the pictures that were taken of Shackleton and his crew because they had a photographer there and then and the ship right before it gets crushed by the ice and then go look at the new pictures and it's it's a it's a it's just amazing so uh and I also didn't know that Shackleton then died on a subsequent mission and I was reading one of the articles and it said that I guess this was in the Guardian um and and when it accounted for Shackleton's death it said that um, the polar regions, says one chief historian, are fitted only for the efforts of young men in the zenith of their strength. The only possible exceptions being tough old whalers who have never had time to be softened by so much as a summer at home. I'm glad you chattered that. I was thinking of chattering it and I decided not to. So I'm glad you did. The thing about Shackleton, I mean, it's everything you read about it is amazing, is that he that expedition was weirdly not as big a deal at the time because he came back. They came back into World War I. So mm-hmm. they had left before the war and they came back and the war was raging and it just it didn't uh, capture the imagination of the, of the time in the way that you would have expected it to given how extraordinary it is. Those pictures are great. I want to chatter about a story in Emily's New York Times. Really nice story. Oh, yes, called- it's all mine. One huge hog, one long day, and a nourishing Southern tradition. And it's a it's a a feature about a hog slaughter in South Carolina, carried out by a black farmer named Marvin Ross. He's a fifth generation farmer. There are very few black farmers left in America, and fifth generation black farmer is that's a, that's also a rare thing. And this guy Mar- Marvin Ross, who has a farm called Peculiar Pig Farm outside of Charleston, has an annual hog slaughtering event, and it's. Lovely photos, just a really account of a really what sounds like an incredible day long party and and uh, hearkening back to something that would have been probably commonplace uh, a century ago, and as well as a description of all kinds of food, some of which sound wonderful. So these beans, these low country beans being cooked down in various bits of hog part in it. But then there's also the hog maw, the hog stomach. That did not sound delicious. Uh, 
So check out the story in the New York Times. Listeners, thank you for sending us your chatters. You email them to us at gabfestslate.com. You tweet them to us at, at slategabfest. And we have a listener chatter, actually, which relates to uh, John's chatter, sort of. It's from Carol Walker. Hello, I'm Carol from Truckee, California. And for my cocktail chatter, I would like to recommend the BBC podcast, 1914 Day by Day. This podcast is a series of 40-some episodes where the historian Margaret Macmillan covers what happens every day from the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand until a few days after Britain entered World War I. Obviously, I have been thinking about this a lot with a new war starting in Europe. Two things that really stood out to me in this podcast are how quickly things escalated from friendly, reassuring diplomatic events to all-out war and also how many chances there were that seemed hopeful that war would be averted. And I found myself very invested, even though obviously I know they didn't work. So again, this podcast is 1914, day by day. Thanks. That's right at my cup of tea. I just read The Guns of August, which is kind of a telling of some of the same time. And it's a great book. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Got a Dickerson topic today. So many good Slate Pluses are Dickerson topics. John is always there with uh, brilliant inspirational ideas. So, John, do you want to set us up? Sure. The, the, the actual question comes from Greg Jones, who's the president of Belmont University. And the question is, who do you carry in your head? I was thinking about this, and the, this is also my answer, so I'll just roll into it. It's my parents, mostly my mother, sometimes my father, but then also my kids. And I was trying to figure out when that handoff took place. Because as we talked about last week, we were talking about courage. I think the when you see yourself through the eyes of your children, it changes you, and I think it can make you more courageous in certain instances. It certainly can make you do the right, <laughs> the right thing. Not that you were necessarily going to do the wrong thing, but it kind of sets the the moral stakes quite clearly. And I'm trying to decide whether there was a moment when it changed from parents to kids, and or whether I just those are two, and I switch back and forth. Hmm. What do you mean when you carry them? I know that the, or what is it? What is it? What is that? What is the moment where you are aware that you are toting them about in your head? Yeah, it's a really good question. And this is why I think it's a, it's a constant back and forth. So at Thanksgiving, when I heard one of my relatives kind of explaining what they'd been up to, and it was somebody who was kind of at college age, um, I w- was reminded of the way we describe what we've been up to to our parents. You kind of it's a there's a particular way you describe what you've been doing, and I haven't done that for a long time because my parents haven't been alive. Um, and so, but I do. I think there is a way in which that kind of thinking, when you just evaluate yourself and see your life through the eyes of of what you associate with your parents' eyes, I think. So it's in moments kind of high. Well, I guess I was going to say it's the acute moments, but that's not necessarily true. Just they kind of pop, they just kind of pop in. Both of my parents definitely pop in in certain moments. And so I see for a flash the world, sort of the way I interpret their worldview. The kids, it's much more constant. It's much more, they are just, I mean, I think they are a part of the way, those glasses are kind of always on. Recently, I've been intrigued by the idea of watching the way in which they start to do things. So we're models for our kids, of course, hopefully good ones. But then they, there's a place where they become models for us, where they start doing things of their own. And you think that's, that's the way I would like to behave. I would like in the, inst- in that same instance to think I would have been that generous or that interested or that way. And so that's one part of parenting, but then do you care? Then I think I carry that with me when they're not around. Is that Get close to answering your question. Yeah. Emily, do you want to go or should I? Well, I was thinking about something else 
I definitely sometimes think about my grandmother because she was such a benevolent presence in my life and she was someone who like just was always rooting for me in this very uncomplicated way. But I also think about people I've written about, like people who are different from me basically because there are just certain people out there in the world who have had different experiences and you know that they're just having a different set of impressions about what's happening because their life experience is different. And I think particularly – that is just a little tease, a little taste of the Slate Plus segment for this week. If you want to hear more, become a member. Go to slate.com slash plus and become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. (laughs) 